jump into 2 Samuel chapter 9, and as you know, we've been going through the story of God following this series, long, or year-long series, it's going to be a little more than that actually before it's done, uh, but we're going to look at how God moves through his word and how his word paints his continuous picture of him, and you've heard the story repeatedly now, but there's a reason I keep repeating it because I want you to know it so that it gets back into your head, that you continue to follow the picture, that you can remember the pattern and the path that you can share it as well. And then when you go in, back into your own Bible, you'll be familiar with what's going on. So from the beginning, God created all things. God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve chose sin over obedience to God. They chose their own kingdom over God's kingdom. And God, because of that, sin entered the world. But God made a promise to Eve that though sin and death had entered the world, that a child from her body, that a, a seed of woman, would come that would set things right in, in, in all ways, that would restore, that would save. And you follow that seed throughout the whole rest of the Bible. And we've already looked from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham or to Noah, Noah to Abraham, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob becoming Israel, Israel becoming a nation, God working through this nation now. And moving this nation around out of bondage in Egypt and giving them a home in, in what's known as Israel now, the promised land. Uh, them rebelling there because they mix their beliefs and their stuff with the people of the land. And as a result, God raises up uh, judges to both govern them and set them free and defeat their enemies. Uh, but they continue in this circle of sin, demanding a king. God ultimately awards them a king based on their demands. He's terrible. His name is Saul. He does some horrible things. He does some good things, but he does some horrible things. God chooses David to be king as a boy, and David and Saul grow up together. Saul hunts David, but uh, eventually Saul meets his end and dies in battle. We talked about that two weeks ago. Uh, and so now David is king, and that's where we're going to pick this up today. We're going to talk about king over karma I normally jump in pretty quick, but I want to talk about this up front um, because this, for me, this is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I love this particular story. I've used it a bunch of times in sharing the gospel. It's a powerful one. But karma, let's talk about it for just a minute because, it, especially in Christian circles, it's kind of a nasty, bad word. We race to discount it as this mystical belief, which it, it is to some degree, but that's not completely fair or completely honest if, if we just cast it away. And what I mean is this, the literal definition, yes, in dictionary.com records it as this, in Hinduism and Buddhism, it's the sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence, and that's viewed as deciding their fate in future instances. Now, we don't believe in pre-existing life's or Hinduism or Buddhism, obviously. But Dictionary.com also says there's an informal common definition that is destiny or fate following as effect from a cause. And we understand that. Like we might say what comes around goes around. That kind of thing. And whether we admit it or not, we tend to give karma some level of guide in our lives. We may act like we don't, but the truth is to some degree we don't. We hope we don't catch it, but we also hope that it defends our cause a little bit, depending on what we might be dealing with. We tend to live in fear that we'll get dealt a great horror for the wrongs that we've done, but at the same time, 
We hope that someone who's done us a great horror might pay for what they did, especially if it's been bad enough. And if you've never felt that way at all, I'm not going to challenge you. I'm not going to call you a liar, but maybe you haven't ever been in a situation bad enough. I think all of us have to wrestle with that at some point in our lives that we, we, we have this sense of, man, I hope you get what you deserve. But the real truth is, it's almost a reality based in Scripture. It's almost a law God put into the universe when he created it. Where am I getting that from? Well, there's a bunch of places, but we could go for the common ones, like eye for what? Ah, tooth for tooth. What comes around goes around. It's, it's the same kind of thing. Or you reap what you sow. Right? Those are biblical truths. They're in there. But what if now the author of karma is able to override karma and yet remain just within that same system? What if the king of the universe is over karma? What, what I'm trying to say is this. If there's a law of karma, how could the author of that law enforce it? With justice and also defeat it for the ones that he loves. And still be just and right. Eye for an eye. It means that the one sinned against can hope for justice in equal measure. That's what it means. The one sinned against can hope for justice in equal measure. That's what it means. In our case, God is the one sinned against. And we are the ones who have sinned. We're the ones who have sinned against him. We're the guilty. So how do we get free of that law? Well, it's grace. That is what grace is. The king accepts his, our punishment on himself. The one who was sinned against humbles himself and accepts our sin on himself, bearing the penalty of justice that was meant for us. The one sinned against accepts the justice for the one who sins against him. That's the cross. That's grace. In a nutshell, that's the grace. The one who sinned against accepts the justice for the ones who sinned against him. It's not just a matter of saying, well, in your case, it's okay. Just going to erase it for you. Because there's a law. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Somebody pays. By trusting him, we're adopted into his family. We're freed from the penalty of sin and karma. So look at Second Samuel chapter 9. Verse 13, and just to clarify, I said it's almost as though karma was Scripture. It is not Scripture, okay, just for the record. I'm not saying that. So chapter 9, 2 Samuel, verse 13, we'll just read this one verse, and then we'll jump in here. So Mephibosheth, big word, we're going to talk about him in a second, lived in Jerusalem. He ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Let me pray. Lord, your word as always, is your word is so much higher than my word. And I don't ever want to mix those two things. Lord, I, I sin. I am by far not perfect. That's not news to you. You know it. Um, Lord, I, I don't want to be the person that changes what you say. I mean, how could I even do that? Lord, let your word stay your word at all times. Let it speak to me just as powerfully as it speaks to anybody else. Uh, because I wanted to. I love learning from your word. And I pray today that as we look into it and we dig into it, that I'm a student, that we're all students, that we all want to hear from what your, set, your word says, what you say. 
then it can lead and guide our lives. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So most of you probably know I've done prison ministry for a very long time, more than two decades now. And uh, it's been a little while since I've done it. Since we moved out here, I haven't done much at all. But uh, that will be something that works its way back into our, our world as a church at some point. But in doing that, I'll never, for as long as I live, forget the moment that this guy, I came in to teach this Bible study, and this dude stands up before I even say a word. Huge man. I've not seen him before. There's probably 30 of us, and we're in this tiny little room, not much bigger than the room we built over there. And uh, we're crammed in here. And this man stands up, African-American giant. I think he's probably six seven, uh, swollen everywhere, tattoos all over everything. And he says, I got a question. Now, I haven't said anything yet. And I knew some of these dudes, but I didn't know this guy. And he said, anytime a guy stands up in prison like that, you kind of take a step back, like something about to happen. It's unusual. They're not supposed to do move, sudden movement. But he stands up, and he puts his hand up, and I'm like, what? And he said, I got a question. I uh, said, so what's that? And he said, how much does forgiveness cost? To this day, I think that's the best question I have ever been asked. How much does forgiveness cost? And he meant that, you know. He meant that. And I can tell you this. It costs more than you have. It costs more than you have. Why, why do I say that? Well, for one, because you can't make somebody forgive you. you. You cannot buy it. No matter how much money you give, that still doesn't guarantee it, even if their mouth says it, Right? Even if they say, okay, give me a million dollars, I forgive you. Thank you. Here's my million. You're forgiven. Do they really? You know, you cannot make somebody mean it in their heart. And that's just talking about people. What about God? If you've sinned, you sinned against him. We all have. So what can you do to buy forgiveness from him? How do you know he's forgiven you? How can you know that you have afforded it. How much does it cost? Bono, singer of U2, he's a believer. And I know they're a rock and roll band and there's all kinds of, we can talk about all that another day. But he's a believer, clearly. And you can read his biography and, and you just about can't argue with his statement of faith in there. But he wrote a song about grace. That's the name of the song. And he uses this line in the song. He says, grace travels outside of karma. Nicole Nordeman, who's a famous Christian singer, recorded the same song, re-recorded it. And I, I actually like her version better. But anyway, Bono was asked about it when he wrote that song. And he said, grace defies reason and logic. I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And if I depend on my own religiosity, I'm doomed. That's good. So here's our point to remember. I, it's, it's on the sheet. If you've got the sheet, great. If you don't, you can grab one. But our life should be shaped by the realization that though we deserve death, though we deserve death, by grace, Jesus saves us, restores us, and adopts us into his family. Now, we may all say that and whatever, but what the important part about that statement is our life should be shaped by it. All right, and that's what I hope you'll see today. So look at verse 1, chapter 9. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jesus, uh, Jonathan's sake? Now remember, Jonathan was Saul's son and David's best friend. David is now king, so he's on the throne. He's established the throne pretty well. 
And the throne has now gone from the bloodline of Benjamin, which is Saul's heritage, to the bloodline of Judah, which is David's heritage. And it was very common practice, and perhaps still is in some parts of the world, to cut off uh, the bloodline of the former regime. So basically, you kill any person that might stand up and say, I have a right to that throne because my granddaddy had it before you. So you, you, that's a typical practice, is to remove or clear out the bloodline so nobody comes back. But in 2 Samuel 20, or 2 Samuel chapter 20, we won't read it, but David had made a covenant with Jonathan, his best friend, because Jonathan knew David would take the throne, and he knew this practice was in place. And so they made an agreement that, that David would not cut his family off or kill his children, basically. But nobody knows that, right? Nobody knows that apart from David and Jonathan. That was their own private agreement. And Jonathan is now dead. He died with Saul. So there's nobody there that knows this, all right? So verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, former, because Saul's dead, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king. So, so David asked his people, hey, is there somebody left? Anybody left from the family of Saul? And they say, well, I don't know, but there's a servant of Saul that's here in the palace. So they bring him in or here in the land, whatever. They bring him in. And the king says to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. I love that. He didn't say yes. What's he saying here? Uh, yeah, I'm your servant. Like, I know where I came from, but don't kill me. Like, I'm your servant. I'm not Saul's servant. I'm your servant. So everybody in this moment is afraid because they know what's going on here. David's wanting to clean house. David's established the throne. He's wanting to clean house. He has a right to do that as well. And so here's this guy. No, no, I'm your servant. But, uh, you know, and the king said, is there still, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now, he's being sincere here, but imagine what they're thinking. Okay, David, you know, you want to show the kindness of God to them. Okay. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son, because he's not going to lie, he's on the spot. There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The word feet is plural, so he's crippled in both of his feet. This account, we know when this happened. You can look, I think it's on the screen, but you can look, Second Samuel 4, verse 4. Tells us when he got crippled. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. This is how it happened. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So this dude became lame as a child. At the moment, this the whole point here is he became lame running for his life because his nurse is getting him out of town because now there's a new king and he's going to wipe out Saul's bloodline. So they're running for their life. Uh, and in the process, in one way or another, it doesn't tell us exactly how, but he becomes crippled in his feet. doesn't say he lost his feet. doesn't say his feet are cut off. doesn't say he can't walk. Just crippled in some sense. Why mention, though, Ziva, why mention that he's crippled here? Yeah. Look for pity. Like, he's no threat to you. David, he's no threat. We don't, we're not sure, but that's likely the case. He's no threat to you. It could be he's not worthy of the king's palace. He's not worthy to even bring up here. He, he's, or, or maybe even he's cursed. You don't want him around here. He's cursed. Or certainly he has no value to you. He looks funny. Walks funny. He's going to need help. 
But either way, don't pick on him, David. He is no threat to you. He, he can't do anything. Like, he, he can't even walk. Verse 4, the king said to him, where is he? Got to feel the weight of that. Where is he? Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar means no garden, no, no paradise, no greenery. It's a, obviously a place of epic wilderness. In fact, we know where the place was. It's right on the eastern edge of Israel in the desert. So this dude has gone as far as he can possibly go without leaving the country. Into one of the most barren places he can find, assuming that that's where he's going to spend the rest of his life, in a sense, in a kind of exile. So he's lame, and he's in this condition, in this place. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth said, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face and paid homage. So get the picture real quick. So get the picture real quick. David sends his army... Or soldiers at the least to go get this dude because he doesn't know if he's going to come without a fight or what. So he sends soldiers. They march from Jerusalem all the way east to get this guy. And we know, you can look it back up, but we know Mephibosheth had a family. Had, a, had kids. All right, you'll see one of them here in a minute. So we know he had kids. We know he had a family. So one day Mephibosheth is doing what he does and then knock on the door. Hobbles up to the door, opens the door, and here's David's soldiers standing there. And I'm sure he looks back, and I can imagine his wife is screaming, don't take him. And he's saying, you know, I got to go. We knew this could have happened. We knew this could, that they may find us. We knew this might be the way it is. She's probably begging. He's probably trying to tell her to be calm. Kids are crying. He goes out the door, shuts the door, and begins this march back, hobbling all the way. Perhaps they stuck him on a donkey or a horse. We don't know. It doesn't say. But either way, this man who can barely walk begins to, in a crippled sense, move slowly all the way back to Jerusalem. And he comes up out of, and I've been to Jerusalem, it's beautiful in the springtime, and we'll assume it was spring. So he comes from the desert, and he comes across all this barrenness, and things start getting greener and greener. And then he comes, and it's up, it's an elevation. So he's coming up, 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 and then he comes over a hill, maybe like Jesus did, coming over the Mount of Olives, which is the best way to come into the city from the east. And as he comes in, he sees this massive city of Jerusalem, beautiful, huge, uh, grandson of the former king. And he walks in, and he comes in, and he comes to the palace, this big palace of David. And he comes in there, doors open, and there's a throne. So a throne that Solomon customizes, David's son customizes a little better, but it's an amazing throne. You can read the details in the Bible of what it looks like. Imposing. And here sits David. Not only the new king, but easily the bloodiest king in the Bible. This man has fought so many wars and so many battles that God won't even let him touch building the temple. We'll come to that later. So David is this warrior king, the man who defeated Goliath when he was a boy. 
is sitting there, and here comes Mephibosheth creeping up and falls on his face. Falls on his face. Nose down, waiting, waiting on the axe to drop. Waiting on the axe to drop. Verse 6. And David said, Mephibosheth. That's what I say. What's up? You know what I mean? Like David probably stands up and goes, I'll call him M because it's easier for me to say, M, man, what's up? You know, big smile. Come up here and give me a hug. You know what I mean? This guy has probably got to be freaking out. And he answered, uh, nose is still down, right? Um, you're a servant. Behold, I'm your servant. What, what, you know, I'm sure he's confused. I'm sure everybody in the room's looking around like, what? And David said to him, do not fear. Don't be afraid. For I will show you kindness. So that word is grace. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Can you imagine this moment? <laughs> Expecting to be killed, deserving it because of his blood, own bloodline? Laying there waiting on the sword to come down on his neck in the presence of this warrior king. And instead he calls him by name with joy. Says, get up. I want you to consider today, if you belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ in this room, your story is the best evidence and illustration of grace. Not of God. God doesn't need you to prove he exists. He's had trees doing that forever. He doesn't need you to prove he exists. But your story is the best evidence of grace. Of grace. Like, if you think your story is simple because it doesn't involve drugs or prison or whatever else, maybe you grew up in church or something like that, it wasn't a big deal for you, you don't really understand the weight of sin, and you don't really understand the truth of grace. We all have sinned. Sin infects all of us. It makes no difference how extreme you abuse it. It's who you are. We're all equally separated from God. We're born into it. You don't believe that? Then why do you say nobody's perfect? That's what that means, right? The issue is not how far God had to come to save this gangbanger over here or this drug addict over here versus how little a distance he had to come to save. He had to come to save all of us. Equally, equally lost. No one is righteous. No, not one. Dead in sins. These are words that the Bible uses. Dead in sin. If you haven't felt the weight of that, you need to. Otherwise, in the smallest little way, you're considering yourself, you know, not as bad as he is. And therefore, you're implying that you've perhaps gathered some merit from God that that guy didn't get. Not the case. Look at verse 8. It says... And he paid homage, or he kneels, gives him respect, and he says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Listen to me, that is always the response to grace. When you truly feel the weight of grace in your life, that's all you can say. In fact, when people ask me, how do you define grace, we have all these fancy sayings like getting what you don't deserve and all these bunch of things. But I think grace is so much more complicated to explain than that. And for me, my answer is always, why me, God? 
That, that's the definition of grace. Why me? And that's what he's saying right here. Why me? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring uh, in the produce that your master's grandsons may have bread to eat. So that's not a bad thing. He's not making a slave out of Ziba here. He's just saying, you and your family were servants to Saul. You're going to continue to do that, but you're going to do it for Saul's grandson. All right? And then he says this. He says, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so he's got a big family himself that's going to be serving Mephibosheth. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will uh, your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. We have a word for that. It's called adoption. Adoption. So you get the picture we're in the David's palace, the dinner bell rings, bling, 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 bling. You know, dinner's ready for the family, spread out on this big table for, in the king's house. And maybe Amnon comes down first, David's oldest son, uh, wise, smart guy, grabs his spot, takes his seat at the table. And then comes Absalom, David's other son, who was considered one of the most beautiful, perfect image men that ever lived. Apparently super hot looking guy. Whatever. He comes down, grabs his spot. Then comes Tamar, a little young daughter of David. Beautiful little girl. Comes hopping down the stairs, whatever. Runs up, sits down, pulls her seat up. And then there comes Mephibosheth. Cripple, walking to his seat. At the same table. I love the way it ends though. I love the way it ends though. Verse 12. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. This is where we started. For he ate always at the king's table. He had his own home, but he came to eat with David every day. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Now that's a powerful line for us. He was lame in both his feet. Why point that back out? He didn't get miracle healed here. He didn't get miracle healed here. In fact, grace, there's, if you run into grace, grace does leave scars. And you will have reminders of that. You will have reminders of that. And I'll tell you in a second. But let's get the picture here. So here's the picture for us. Let's bring Mephibosheth's story into our world real quick. Um, our condition, Romans 3.10. You can write these verses down there up there, but you can write them down. Here's our condition. Just as he was in the desert, here's ours. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. In fact, we're running from him. You may pretend like you're not, but you are. We're running from him. We're trying to hide in the wilderness. And how do I know that? Because Adam and Eve did it first. And we've all been doing it ever since. How did I get saved then? He seeks us. Just as David went to seek him in Luke 19, verse 9, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to us. We didn't climb up to him. He came to us to seek and save us. Jesus made a covenant with us, just like Jonathan and David had a covenant in Luke 22, verse 20. We'll celebrate it next week. 
Likewise, the cup after they had eaten it, saying, this, this cup, Jesus says, that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He makes a covenant with us. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the most unbelievable statements in the Bible. While we were still his enemies, while we were still his sinners, while we still had a right to die, while we had no leg to stand on, while we were in the back edge of a desert, he seeks us and dies for us. He honors the covenant agreement that he made in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he becomes a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're no longer that person in the desert. Now you're in the house of the king. Revelation 20, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, this is speaking of Jesus speaking, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Grace. He restores us. Joel 2, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I have sent among you. He is a king who restores. He adopts us. Romans 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, or Daddy, Father. And we sit at his table. Revelation 19.9 says, And the angel said, Write these things. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king. Let me say it like this. We are enemies of that king. We are enemies of that king. We are children of a fallen kingdom. We're children of a fallen kingdom. Paul puts it like this. We're dead in our trespasses and sins in Ephesians chapter 2. Dead. But the new king, the new king has done something unbelievable. Paul says because of his great mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, Christ made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been Saved. And rather than condemn us to death, which we deserve, Jesus conquers death for us, making forgiveness possible. It's a complete act of grace. It's completely within the sense of karma because somebody paid, but it's also completely above karma because we deserve it. By grace, he pursued us into the desert, into our exile, into our hiding, and has taken us from barrenness to the palace. You know, grace brings us before the king, not to face judgment, but to be called by name and embraced. Man, look, look, I'm I'm, I'm not being sensational here. If you know me, you know I mean it. Like, that's my reward. Look, look, I don't give a flip about golden palaces or streets of gold. I just don't care. But, man, if he'll stand up and say my name like that, that's what I'm after. Grace brings us before the king. To be loved. Grace gives us more though. Not only are we spared from death. But we're restored. Restored. Jesus gives us back the life that was lost. The kingdom of Adam. 
that was lost is restored in the kingdom of Christ. And still grace gives us more. We're adopted into his family. We're made his children. We, we, we eat at the king's table always. And yes, yes, grace leaves scars. Uh, but those scars are there to remind us of how far God has come to save us. How far God has come to save us. And I know that we tend to gloss over some of this stuff or push some of this stuff aside, but that's because we tend to look for ways to make it happen ourselves. It's not going to. It's not going to. Because forgiveness costs more than you have. Forgiveness costs more than you have. He invites us to his table as sons and daughters of the king. It's his invitation. It's his forgiveness. It's his love. It's his desire to give you a place at his table now and in heaven. It's already the case. And it begins with one act. One act. Kneeling. Repentance. Coming to the king at his call. And humbling yourself before that throne and saying, I deserve to die. I deserve to die. Can you admit that you're a sinner? Can, can you do that? Can you admit that you're a sinner? Can, can you trust, though, that the king on that throne is good? And that the king on that throne sacrificed his own son in order to grant you forgiveness. If you can believe that and you can trust that, tell him. Tell him. You don't need me to walk you through that. You tell him in your own words. And I can tell you right now, if you can say that from your heart, you become part of the family. You got a seat forever. You got a seat at the table forever. Let's close this up. If you guys will stand up, and we're going to sing one more song. Uh, let me end with a quote uh, from Ch- Charles Swindoll. I've always liked this, the way he words it related to this story. But let me give you the point again. Our life should be shaped by the realization that we deserve, though we deserve death, by grace, Jesus saves us, restores us, and adopts us into his family. That should shape your life. The more you think about this, the more it should really guide how you behave. So Charles Swindoll said this. Can you imagine sitting down one day with Paul and Peter and John? And perhaps asking James to pass the potatoes. Talking to Isaac Watts and Martin Luther to Calvin to Wycliffe. To break bread with Abraham and Esther, Isaiah, and yes, David himself. Along with Mephibosheth. And the Lord will look at you and he'll say, yes, you two are mine. You're just as important to me as all of my other sons and daughters enjoyed a meal. It'll take eternity for us to adequately express what this truth means to us. That he chose us in our sinful and rebellious condition. And in grace took us from a barren place and gave us a place at his table. And in love allowed his tablecloth to cover 
a tablecloth of grace to cover our sinful feet. Lord, you are an awesome, amazing God, and I thank you for grace. I get destroyed by it every time I come to this story. Um, And honestly, I thank you for that. I thank you for the scars in my life that remind me how far you came to save me. Lord, I thank you for your word and and stories like this that aren't stories. Somebody lived this out. There is a Mephibosheth. And I truly expect one day to sit down and hear his story. Although I know at that time he'll, he'll have no lame feet. He'll be perfect. And I know the only scars in heaven are on your hands and your feet. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, I pray today that if anybody's given their life to you, if anybody's moved towards that, that they wouldn't leave to get today until they talk to us about it. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.